going to be picking up again tonight in Acts chapter 21. So I encourage you to open your Bibles now and find your way to that chapter, Acts 21. And as we turn there, let's pause as always and ask the Lord for his help. Father, um, there's a great deal to cover tonight and a great deal to learn from these events in Acts 21 and 22, so I pray that you'd help us, God, that you'd focus our minds now, that you would open our hearts now, and that you'd open my lips now, and help me to be faithful to your word and to your son. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So for a while now, we've been following the Apostle Paul over land and sea as he's made his way around the Mediterranean basin, preaching Christ on his third missionary journey. We followed him through Phrygia and Galatia and Macedonia and Greece, preaching and ministering in cities like Ephesus and Philippi and Troas, and God has blessed his efforts. But last Wednesday, we saw that the great Apostle had completed his monumental journey, concluding his travels in Jerusalem there in verse 17 and relating to the elders in the church in verse 19 the things which God had done among the Gentiles. And so Paul's third missionary journey came to a conclusion, a happy conclusion, rejoicing with the leaders in Jerusalem over a successful trip. But you may remember also that As Paul was making his way closer to Jerusalem, he began receiving warning signals from the Holy Spirit that troubles lie ahead in the great city of Jerusalem. While he was in the city of Tyre, the disciples there, verse 4, kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And in Caesarea, verses 10 and 11, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Troubles lie ahead of you in Jerusalem, Paul. That's what the Holy Spirit kept warning him. And tonight, we're going to see those troubles begin taking shape. And I want you to see, first of all, just another forewarning of the difficulties, even in the way Paul, when he first arrived in Jerusalem, faced suspicions from within the church. That's sort of the first heading tonight, suspicions from within. Read with me, beginning in verse 17. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Suspicion, even from 
within the church. It should be noted that this suspicion of the Apostle Paul from among the Jewish believers does not seem to be the fulfillment of the severe testing that Paul had been warned of earlier in this chapter. The Jews who would eventually hand Paul over to the Gentiles were not the believing Jews that we've just read about. The believing Jews were apprehensive about Paul, yes, and that apprehensiveness was perhaps another forewarning of how difficult Jerusalem was going to be for him, but this is not the severe testing that Agabus warned about in verses 10 and 11. We're not there yet. That would come from those outside the church. But still, there was suspicion of Paul even within the Jewish church. And we should also note well that the suspicion of Paul from within the church did not come from the direction of the elders. They, verse 20, began glorifying God when they heard Paul's report. Now, the suspicion in these verses came not from the elders, but from the congregation, from the many thousands of Jewish believers. And just before we go on, just let that number sink in in verse 20. How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. We're going to see some problems among them, but before we do, praise God for that number. Even if some of them were wrongly suspicious of Paul, many thousands of Jewish people had come to Christ in those two to three decades since Jesus' death and resurrection. Praise God for that. But these Jews, while having come to Christ, were still zealous for the law, verse 20. Zealous for the Old Testament ceremonial law and custom. Many of them were still living in and around Jerusalem, and the temple was at that time still standing, and the various ceremonies attached to the temple, along with the various other customs of the ceremonial law given by Moses, were still being practiced all around these Jewish Christians. And as Matthew Henry points out, they had surely found spiritual benefit in these things. These ceremonies that they'd grown up with, after all, had been designed by God to point them to Jesus, right? And so many, if not most, or even all of the Jewish Christians in and around Jerusalem were still keeping to those customs, still participating in temple worship, evidently, still circumcising their children and so on. And so even though none of these things were any longer necessary because Christ had come and fulfilled what the law had foreshadowed, even though Christ's coming had rendered the law's ceremonies no longer needed in the life of the believer, these Jewish believers continued to practice them. And insofar as they did not believe that such customs and law-keeping actually saved them, insofar as they understood that these things pointed them to Christ, the New Testament leaders seemed to treat this early Jewish Christian practice as unnecessary, but not altogether unchristian. For them to continue with the Jewish ceremonies was unnecessary, but it didn't make them unchristian. We'll see that clearly in the way that Paul and the others respond in just a few moments. But the problems came in, as we saw in chapter 15, when Jewish people sometimes began to say that the Jewish ceremonies and Mosaic law-keeping were not only good customs to keep up 
with, but that they were actually necessary for salvation. And when those Old Testament ceremonies were then foisted upon the Gentiles as a supposed means of being a true Christian, that's when there were problems. But that debate had already been settled in chapter 15, hadn't it, by the elders of this very same church in Jerusalem. Some people had come along then saying, listen, if you want to be a a real Christian, you have to be circumcised like Moses said. And they had debated that with Barnabas and Paul, and they brought the debate to Jerusalem, and the decision had been that the Gentiles don't have to keep to the Mosaic ceremonies in order to be saved, but simply that they will do well to avoid a few things that were particularly offensive to the mindset of their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And that was a great victory settling the fact that the Gentiles did not need to become Jewish in order to be saved. But after that victory, as we see here in verse 21, some of these same Jewish Christians still thought it was very suspect if one of their fellow Jews began living like a Gentile. It was one thing for the Gentile Christians not to become Jewish. It was another thing for the Jewish Christians to set aside the ceremonies and start to live like the Gentile Christians. And when they saw that that might be happening or they were suspicious of it, they accused Paul of urging Jewish people to do just that. They accused Paul of urging Jewish people to lay aside the customs and the ceremonies of the Old Testament to stop circumcising their children even. And this accusation, this, this worry, this fear that they had about Paul and what's he really all about became, in verse 22, a real conundrum for Paul and for the elders in Jerusalem when he arrived in the city. The elders loved and supported Paul, as we can see there in verses 19 and 20, but many of their people thought that he was suspect. And so we should note a couple of things about their suspicions before we carry on. First of all, their suspicions in verse 21 about Paul were not actually correct. Paul was not doing the things that they suspected him of doing. Paul was not teaching Jewish people to stop living according to the Mosaic ceremonies. He himself, in fact, sometimes participated in those ceremonies. Remember that we read in chapter 20 that he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish holiday. That's why he's in the city to begin with. He's come for a Jewish holiday. So Paul was not doing what the Jewish believers suspected him of doing. He was not telling Jews to stop practicing Old Testament ceremony. In fact, just listen to this good summary by the old Methodist commentator Adam Clark. He says this about the Jewish suspicions that Paul was urging Jews to forsake Moses. This information was incorrect. We do not find Paul preaching thus to the Jews. It is true that in his epistles, some of which had been written before this time, he showed that circumcision and uncircumcision were equally unavailable for the salvation of the soul and that by deeds of the law no man could be justified. But he had not yet said to any Jew, forsake Moses and do not circumcise your children. He told them that Jesus Christ had delivered them from the yoke of the law, but they had as yet liberty to wear that yoke if they pleased. In other words, Paul was not on a crusade to get Jewish people to stop being Jewish or to stop living according to Mosaic custom. He was on a mission, rather, to compel people to come to Christ. 
the Savior of both Jews and Greeks, and the fulfillment of all those exact customs. Paul's quarrels concerning the Mosaic law, when he actually had them, came when people tried to use it either as a means or as a test of salvation. But when people who genuinely rested on Christ kept up some of the ceremonies, Paul didn't seem to have a problem. So the accusation in verse 21 was not true. These Jewish believers had either been misinformed or they'd made assumptions and extrapolations that were false. But then there's something else that is wrong-headed about the suspicions of verse 21, and this is even far more important, I think. Supposing that Paul had done the very things that he was presumed to have done. Suppose he was telling Jewish people that they shouldn't any longer go to the temple and that they should stop circumcising their children and so on. Would that have been heresy? Would that have undermined the gospel? It would have undermined traditional but now unnecessary Jewish ceremonies, to be sure, but it wouldn't have undermined the gospel one bit, would it? Because... Whether we are Jews or Gentiles, we're not saved by works of the law, whether they be moral works or ceremonial works, are we? So even if Paul had been saying to people, you shouldn't any longer keep these ceremonial Old Testament customs, that wouldn't have been false doctrine. So these Jewish believers, while they were true believers, still had some significant growing to do. They were placing the emphasis on the wrong things. They were emphasizing things that are really neither here nor there in terms of salvation or right interpretation of the Bible. So what if traditional Judaism was no longer prospering in places like Ephesus and Thessalonica? So long as people were coming to Christ, right? So long as people were coming to the reality to which all the ceremonies pointed, so long as they were coming to the God of Israel, what difference did it make if they were behaving like Old Testament Israel? in terms of their ceremonies. The emphasis of these Jewish believers on Judaism and therefore their deep concerns about whether Paul was upholding it are entirely misplaced. They should have emphasized the gospel and Christ. And that's where the rubber really meets the road in our own lives. There probably aren't any traditions in our religious culture that are so strong as those which the early Jews carried with them into the church. And certainly their traditions came right out of the Bible, which made it even more difficult for them to see how they'd become unnecessary. But even though our traditions may not be as strong as theirs, we are still perhaps tempted sometimes to place too high an emphasis on them, to be suspicious of people who, while believing the same good news as us and preaching the same good news as us and worshiping the same Jesus as us and reading the same Bible as us and loving the Bible as much as we do, yet we may be suspicious of them because they do not adhere to our certain traditions. Be careful of that. It's a sad thing, in other words, to put a modern face on it. It's a sad thing when Bible-believing, gospel-preaching Jesus-loving Christians are suspicious of other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Jesus-loving Christians because they read from a different Bible translation than we do, or because their Sunday worship is in a different style than ours, or their Sunday attire is in a different style than what we were always told was appropriate. 
And that sort of suspicion goes in both directions, mind you. But none of these things are of the essence of the gospel, are they? They're far less important even than the issues on the table in Acts 21. And those things weren't of the essence of the gospel. And so I think we learn from this passage to let the main things be the main things, right? To understand what is and what is not a real gospel issue. What is and what is not a real biblical issue. And to refrain from suspicion of those who disagree with us on things that do not really amount to any biblical importance. Just think about how that might apply to you. How you might be tempted to be suspicious or standoffish or critical of other Christians over things that the Bible makes no issue of at all. And to to the extent that you struggle with that, be careful and repent and reorient your focus on the things that says are important. Reorient your focus on Christ and him crucified. And if you ever find yourself on the other side of the fence, if you ever find yourself the one being looked upon with suspicion by other Christians, or if you know that you're walking into a situation in which you might be looked upon in that way, notice the way Paul and the Jerusalem elders here conciliate the weaker brothers in the Jerusalem church. Read with me again at verse 22. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may, have their, they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Now, without going into a lot of details, the point of what's happening here is that Paul submitted himself to certain Jewish customs so as not to give unnecessary offense to the Jewish believers all around him in Jerusalem. He conciliated. He could have stood up and defended himself against their false accusations, right? And he could have even more forcefully shown these people how immature they were being, fretting over these issues that were neither here nor there now that Christ had come. But instead of defending himself, he chose the route of conciliation, of giving no unnecessary offense on an issue that was neither here nor there. And that's the other side of the fence, isn't it? Sometimes we can be suspicious of others because of issues that are neither here nor there. And sometimes we can see that people are suspicious on things that are neither here nor there and thereby make something out of what's really nothing, right? We accuse them of making something out of nothing, and by doing so, we add to the problem. Paul wasn't like that. Paul conciliated. In other words, if Paul were living today, he'd not walk into a King James-only church and preach from the New American Standard Bible just to prove a point. Nor would he go into a church that's really into contemporary worship and lead them in singing, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, just to prove a point. So long as such issues were not being treated as saving issues, 
So long as people were not saying, you must be circumcised to be saved, you must live according to our customs to be saved, Paul was willing to conciliate. He was willing to put up with other people's customs, even if they were unnecessary. Now, when such a tradition was being elevated to the level of gospel importance, when people did say or did act as though one must keep the ceremonies in order to be saved, Paul would go to battle as he did in Acts 15, defending the finished work of Christ against our own attempts to save ourselves. But when the customs at debate were just stumbling blocks or were just barriers between true Christ alone, faith alone kind of Christians, Paul is incredibly willing to conciliate, and he is in this way a model for dealing with suspicion from within the church. Conciliation. But we must hasten on and notice also the threats from outside the church. Suspicion from within, threats from without. Verses 27 through 36. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid! This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, Away with him! Threats from outside. Now, Paul here is no longer dealing with Jewish believers, but with an angry mob of apparent unbelievers. And their accusations against him in verse 28 are greater than were the suspicions from within the church. But their accusations are just as false. Paul had no vendetta against the Jewish people or against the law or against the temple. Read this book of Acts, read his epistles, and you'll see that that is true. Nor did Paul bring a Gentile into the temple as they accused him of. Verse 29 fills us in on that fact. But when people are angry, and especially when they oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ, truthfulness is not always a great consideration in their actions. No, in such situations, mob rule usually fits the bill and gets the job done done just fine. And that's what we see here. A mob is gathered in the streets. Paul is dragged out of the temple. He's beaten by the people whose aim is to kill him right there in the streets of Jerusalem. And but for the arrival of the Roman soldiers on the scene, they probably would have. And here, I believe, is what the believers in Tyre and Caesarea were so afraid of. Here is the trouble 
at Jerusalem being fulfilled before our eyes. But as Paul indicated in chapter 20, this sort of thing was just par for the course in every city where he went. Paul was often opposed. There were mobs. There was violence when Paul went from place to place. And the same is true for many preachers today in many parts of the world. I stand here tonight in a heated building, standing behind a nice little pulpit, preaching to friendly faces. That's what preaching the gospel seems like to most of us when we think of it. And we're thankful that it is so peaceful and tranquil for us. But it's not that way tonight in many places in the world. And it has not been so in many periods of church history either. I was listening this week to a lecture on the Scottish Covenanters of the 1600s. I've told you about them a time or two before. And one of the things that they were known for is having to hold their services out amongst the hills and valleys of Scotland, gathering secretly in obscure country places because they knew of what the king's soldiers might do to them and to their preachers if they were caught preaching the word of God. And so they met on edge, never knowing what may happen before the service was concluded. And many of our brethren face similar fears even tonight. Let's not forget to pray for them. But let's notice, too, that Paul's being dragged and beaten and arrested in Jerusalem was not in vain. Because, as we will see tonight, and especially in the chapters that lie ahead of us, this being bound in Jerusalem led to Paul being able to speak the gospel to people and in places that may otherwise never have listened to him. Because of this opposition and suffering and arrest in Jerusalem, Paul is now going to speak of Christ before kings and governors, just as Jesus said in Luke 21 that his people would do. Paul is going to have an audience with this Roman commander and even before the Jewish Sanhedrin. He's going to get to speak in front of Felix and Festus, the governors, and Agrippa, the king. And when the book of Acts concludes, Paul is in Rome awaiting an audience with Caesar himself. We love to have known what Paul would have said to Caesar. Maybe he did say to Caesar. But all of these things came out of these troubles at Jerusalem. And who knows what good, who knows what opportunities for Christ may come out of your troubles. Keep that in mind when you suffer, and especially when you suffer for Jesus' sake. God's probably doing a dozen things that you don't know about, but one of them may be that he's putting you in position to speak for Jesus to people and in places that you never thought possible. Now, in this particular case, Paul's first opportunity to speak because of this suffering in Jerusalem was to speak to the very mobs who had attacked him. It's not often that you can get an angry mob to hush up and listen to a reasonable explanation of things, but in the providence of God, that's what Paul got that night. And so I just want to look briefly at what what Paul said to them. So we've thought about suspicions from within the church. We've looked at these threats and suffering from outside the church. And now let's listen in on Paul's defense, beginning in chapter 21, verse 37. And we'll read all the way down through 22, verse 22. As Paul was about 
to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? And you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that I was, as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. A certain Ananias, a man who is devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him. And he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste. And get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles." They listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Just notice how Paul uses this opportunity not only to explain himself to the crowds and to make a defense and perhaps to get himself out of hot water, but just notice, too, how he uses this public opportunity to tell them how Jesus saved him to tell them what Jesus had done for his soul. Paul could have begun, of course, by explaining that he hadn't, in fact, brought a Gentile into the temple. 
He could have spent most of his time demonstrating that the other claims against him were false, and he does offer a bit of that latter kind of self-defense. But Paul also goes bigger picture. He attempts to tell these people his whole story, how he understands the way they feel because he has been right there with them. Verse 3, but how Jesus met him and turned his world upside down, forgiving his sins, verse 16, and commissioning him to preach the gospel. Paul wants these people to know why he is who he is and why he's doing what he's doing. He wants them to understand what Jesus the Nazarene has done in his life. Even though their blood is curdling against them and they've just attempted to take that life from him, he wants to speak to them about Jesus. And what an example of using every opportunity to do so. Jesus the Nazarene, verse 8. He is the one who stopped Paul in his murderous tracks. He is the one in whose name Paul washed away his sins, verse 16. He is the one who commissioned Paul, a preacher, and sent him far away to the Gentiles. Paul wants these people to know that it was Jesus who has made the difference in his life. And I just say again, what an example that we too might be eager to tell people what Jesus has done for us, the difference that he has made, how he met us, how he's called us, how he's forgiven us. That's what Paul is doing here in these verses, extolling the power of Jesus. But I think he's also trying to answer the charge that he's anti-Jewish. That really was the essence of the charge against him back in chapter 21, verse 28. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law, and this place. He's against us, he's against Moses, he's against the temple. In fact, this mob is so convinced that Paul is anti-Jewish that they seem surprised in verse 2 to discover that he speaks in the Hebrew dialect. But he does. And he begins his speech by asserting in verse 3 his Jewish ethnicity, his Jewish upbringing, his Jewish education, his zeal for God and for his law. He says to them, I was exactly where you all are today. And he goes on in verse 4 to explain how he too once thought it duty to oppose people like himself. Paul is trying to assert his Jewish credentials and to show his countrymen that he knows where they're coming from. And then he explains how Jesus met him on the road and saved him and washed him and appointed him to preach. And then note well in verses 19, 20, and 21 that he seems to emphasize to them that it was not his idea to leave Jerusalem and to go preach to the Gentiles. I think that's what those verses are saying. In fact, in verses 19 and 20, it sounds to me like Paul was trying to convince the Lord that he would be just the fellow to share Christ with his own countrymen. Jesus told him to get out of the city, and he seems to start to to try to argue with him. Lord, they'll know about me. They'll know my past, and they'll see the radical difference in me, and, and that makes me the perfect person to preach in Jerusalem, to preach to the Jews. I think that's what he's getting at there. I think Paul wanted to preach to the Jews. I think that's what verses 19 and 20 are about. Paul was trying to convince the Lord that the Jews would listen to someone like him. And now he is rehashing that conversation before these Jewish crowds as part of his defense against their accusations. 
He wants them to know, I'm not anti-Jewish at all. I'm one of you, verse 3. I understand where you're coming from, and meeting Jesus didn't change that. I, verses 19 and 20, wanted to be a minister of the gospel among you, my countrymen. And then in verse 21, he tries to explain that the reason why he's not there with them, the reason why he went to the Gentiles was simply because that's what the Lord told him to do. And that's where they cut it off. They didn't want to hear anything about the Gentiles. Evidently, someone who would preach to them couldn't be sent by God. Indeed, someone who would go to the Gentiles should not be allowed to live, they say. Such is the rotten fruit of prejudice. And that's what really seems to be at the crux of the issue for this mob in Jerusalem. Prejudice. They didn't balk when Paul spoke to them about Jesus meeting him on the road. That's where you would expect them to balk, at the mention of Jesus. But they didn't balk then. They actually got upset when they heard that Paul and Paul's Jesus cared for the Gentiles. And then they let their hot-headed nationalism drown out the voice of the one who could have told them how to be saved. Prejudice. I just urge you to be aware of that. Here are religious people. Here are people who are zealous for the law of God and yet incredibly prejudiced. Be careful. Whether it be racial prejudice, national prejudice, even religiously motivated prejudice. Those Middle Eastern Muslims that many people in our country fear and belittle and even despise might just be the folks to whom God is going to send the good news of Jesus. And we should hope for that. We should rejoice if he does that rather than treating such a thought as suspicious or with jealousy. We should be like Paul, yes, loving our own countrymen, but being willing to love and even to go far away to the Gentiles. So Paul is a Jew and he loves his people. But in the final verses of chapter 20, we're going to find out that not only is Paul a Jew, but that he's a citizen of the empire of Rome as well. We'll call this last part Paul the Roman, verses 22 through 30. They listened to him up to this statement and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. 
But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Paul the Roman. The Roman Empire in those days stretched far and wide and encompassed a number of different peoples and lands. And yet it's clear from this passage that just because you lived in that vast Roman jurisdiction did not mean you necessarily had the rights of a citizen. Even this powerful commander had not always been a citizen, we learn in verse 28. And it's clear that he and his centurion both assumed that Paul was one of those people on the outside looking in too, a subject of Rome, but not a protected citizen. Not everyone was a citizen. This passage also makes it fairly evident that those who were Roman citizens were possessed with certain rights that the rest of the people living in Roman lands evidently did not have. Paul's question in verse 25 seems to indicate that it was unlawful to scourge a Roman citizen without a proper trial and conviction. But if it was unlawful to scourge a Roman citizen in that way, evidently it wasn't unlawful to scourge someone who wasn't a citizen. Roman citizens had rights in some ways similar to what we enjoy today. And Paul was a Roman citizen. Now what are we to draw from this? Well, the note that I want to strike from these final verses is that of God's providence. Why in God's plan was Paul born a Roman citizen? Perhaps for such a time as this. Perhaps to keep him alive and well in these all-important days when he was to witness before kings and governors, and perhaps even before Caesar himself. Had Paul not been a Roman citizen, who knows whether they may not have eventually just thrown him back out to the crowds and let justice come to whom it may. Paul almost certainly would not have been protected like we'll see him being protected in later chapters of this book. And the gospel opportunities that he would have before Felix and Festus and Agrippa would likely never have materialized if Paul hadn't been a Roman citizen. But you see, the God who appoints the boundaries of our habitation knew all that. Just as he sent his own son into the world in the fullness of the time, so also he sent Paul into just the right circumstances. He sent Paul during the time of the Pax Romana, or Roman peace, when the empire's borders were secure and when commerce was therefore prosperous, both of which things made travel, surely, like those that Paul undertook, much safer and much more practicable than at other periods of history. Roman citizen with advantages that would enable him to do the very work that God was calling him to do. And if you are his child, though your circumstances may seem far less influential or essential to God's purpose than those of Paul, he has determined the boundaries of your habitation as well. That you would seek God that you would find him and that you would be equipped and positioned to serve him in the very work to which he has set you apart. Now, none of us is as important as the Apostle Paul. We admit that. But we're all positioned by our Heavenly Father just as precisely as Paul was, just as perfectly as Queen Esther in times of old. God has made you who you are. 
He's given you what he's given you. He's positioned you where he's positioned you for such a time as this. The citizenship that you hold, the education or training that you've been given, the upbringing that you receive for better or for worse, the church that you attend, the neighborhood in which you live, all of these things, like Paul's Roman citizenship, have been given you by God that you might do the very work that he has called you to do. Indeed, let me just say a word about citizenship. It was a great privilege, a great privilege to be a Roman citizen in the first century A.D. during the Pax Romana. So great, in fact, that the best comparison that I can make to the privilege that those folks endured uh, or enjoyed is to liken it to the privilege that belonged to those people who were citizens of the United States of America around the turning of the 20th to the 21st centuries. America, at the turning of those two centuries, despite all her failings, and they were many, was the most privileged nation on the face of the earth. Their language was the universal language of trade and of education. They had rights and privileges like few people in the world have ever possessed. They had large amounts of money at their disposal for the work of God. They had more Christian literature and greater seminaries and more access to sound theology than any nation in the history of the world. Their money and their passports were welcomed in nation after nation after nation around the globe. Immigrants came to them in droves, bringing the mission field often right to their doorsteps. And their government gave them liberty to worship as they saw fit and to proclaim Jesus both at home and abroad. What a time, what a place, what an opportunity to live for Jesus. Oh, that's now, you say? I've just been describing such a time as this? These are the privileges that belong to our time? These are the opportunities that belong to our place? Then let us make the most of our opportunity before it vanishes into mere history like Rome eventually did. We have been placed in this country at this amazing confluence of world events for such a time as this. So let us, like Paul, make the most of our citizenship.